and howdy. Well, guys, if you do not know me, my name is Benjamin Pinkerton. I'm the college pastor here at Anderson, and it's always a privilege, again, to get to be here with you guys. Uh, I, I grew up here, well, I didn't grow up here, but whenever I was a college student, I would come over to Mainside and go to college service, and there were so many families that invested in me, adults that showed me even just life after college and what it means to be uh, a mature believer and I have been drastically changed by my time, uh, even just sitting in this room. And so I, I pray that that will be the same for all of us. Uh, so I know we're going through the book of James today, and so I felt like it was appropriate for me to start off with a confession. See, I have a confession for you guys, and I have to admit this in front of all of you, and so you're, you better be lucky that you're not up here having to confess as well. But my confession is uh, that I believe that my daughter... Charlie Joy Pinkerton is, uh, she's the cutest baby to ever be born on the planet, which has implications. It means that all of your babies, uh, I believe, aren't as cute. And I know that sounds terrible, uh, but I have facts to prove it, you see. Uh, This was her only about an hour after being born. And actually a doctor, when they looked at her right after she was delivered, uh, one doctor, and I quote, said, this is the most beautiful baby. I've ever seen. And I hold on to that. That's not what they say to everybody. Uh, just, just to the dad, okay? I believe that. Um, and she's, she's just a darling. I mean, she, she really is. Like, she's cute, she's beautiful, and she only gets more beautiful, okay? This is her at about 18 months old. Uh, and, and I have another confession. I, I think she's the cutest baby to ever be born, but I also uh, don't think she can ever be rivaled. Uh, except by maybe one, and that baby is coming in April, right? Yeah, this is James Roscoe. Yes, that's praiseworthy. Praise God uh, for life. And and Jr. is coming in April, two years after Charlie. And I just can't wait. Now I was, you know, girl dads are the bomb, but also now getting to be a boy dad, I'm pumped. Okay, so this is really just time for me to get to brag on my kids, whatever. Uh, but I am so uh, excited to be a dad of JR as well, and, and recognizing I have biases. I mean, I, I, am, I am prejudiced in some ways. I, I see new babies born, and I can't help but compare. I can't help but say, that's a cute baby, but not as cute as Charlie, or how cute James will be. It's just, it's a fact of life, in my mind, at least, okay? And, and I realize that there's a problem which is why I'm confessing it to all of you, uh, because I also recognize I'm like uh, probably overprotective. Uh, I even just, when I think about Charlie someday, a boy asking her out on a date, I, I, can't, I can't even explain that my heart beats a little faster and I'm naturally a little bit more defensive and protective and she's only like 20 months old, but it doesn't matter, right? She can never date anyone, right? And so, you know, I'm, a, I'm just protective like that. Uh, And when I think about that protection, I bet many of you in this room, if you have kids, you also feel a sense of protection uh, for your kids. You're defensive for your kids. And and hopefully it's not over the top where it's actually unhealthy. But at the same time, uh, protective. You want your kids to thrive, to live a successful life, to live a life of meaning, purpose, of goodness. To walk in the manner worthy of the life that they've been called to. You, You hope for that. 
Well, the constant biblical image that we see in Scripture is that God relates to people like a, God, like a father with his children. And today, our passage that we're going to be going through in James chapter 2, it's going to be operating under the assumption that, that all of us are made in the image of God. And therefore, he, he, he desires for all people to be saved and to be his children. And yet, there's something really ugly that pops up in human beings. And it happens in the church, even. It happens with believers, which is why James is talking to believers, telling them what he's going to tell them today. And the really ugly thing creeping up in the church is favoritism. It's partiality. It's prejudice. It's discrimination. That this pops up, and, and we see it. We see this concept of some people, to me, are more worthy of being loved. Some people are more valuable of my time. Some people are, are worth it. And some people, frankly, are just not as worthy or as valuable. And, and this is a big problem. This is a big problem around the world. It's a big problem even often in the church. And, and ultimately, this is the big idea of the passage, that the followers of Jesus should not show favoritism. The followers of Jesus should not show favoritism. Because every time that we maybe neglect or disvalue or overlook a person, we are stepping over one of God's children that, is, that he has given all of his love to. And again, just how defensive we might be of our kids. Think often, why would God be so passionate about his children and see how his children sometimes treat one another? The reality is that all of us, though, in this room, we, we do tend to play favorites. We do. If not outwardly in our actions, or if you have to confess it on a stage, uh, certainly inwardly in our hearts. That all of us actually have uh, biases and, and we show uh, partiality, we show favoritism. Uh, for some of us, this evaluation might be based on uh, socioeconomic status. I only associate with people that are kind of in my same uh, price bracket, in the houses that I live in. I, I actually think about school organizations at A&M, maybe fraternities or sororities or clubs uh, that will literally go on Google Maps and will look at the students that are applying to be a part of their organization or their fraternity or sorority, and they might make a decision based on if they are wealthy enough to be a part of their club. That's prejudice based on income. But maybe some of us, it's uh, whether a person is a Republican or a Democrat. And you might say, or you might have at least heard, if you voted for Joe or you voted for Trump, then we don't really have anything to talk about. You are already so ignorant, I would not even give you time of day. I won't even talk to you. I don't even want to have a conversation because nothing you can say would bring value to me. That concept of of favoritism. That's prejudice based on political orientation. For others, it's race. It's, it's this idea, our family only interacts with or hangs out with, or I'll only let my children marry a people of a certain race, which you might have heard before. You might have said before. That is prejudice or favoritism that's based on race. Maybe it's perceived intelligence. In college, it's pretty easy. Like, if you're a liberal arts major and, and someone, you know, asks you and they're like, oh, well, naturally, I only hang out with engineers or STEM majors, which would be weird for you to say, but maybe in your mind, you're like, liberal arts, what? Or maybe you're a liberal arts major and you go, I don't hang out with nerds. I don't know, right? There's this judgment, right? 
based on maybe education or major, that we value people. Sometimes it's simply external appearance. The clothes that you wear, maybe it's your age, maybe it's your personality. Whatever it is, it's this concept that you are less worthy than someone else. You're not worthy of my time. And James is going to exhort us to target and uproot the weed that favoritism is. So that the beautiful fruit of love might be represented. So again, specifically today, we're going to look at James chapter 2, and he's going to tell us this. Show love, not favoritism. Show love, not favoritism. And this is going to be an evaluation time for all of us to think through, maybe there's a place in my heart that I show favoritism, and I need to start showing love. James is going to give us an exhortation, an explanation, and then the application. So go ahead and turn with me, James chapter 2, verses 1, or verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. Let me give you a little context. Because a text without a context uh, can become a pretext for a proof text. Just meaning that if you don't know where you're at in the section, you should always know and ask these questions. Who's writing? Who are they writing to? Why are they writing? When I'm reading chapter 2, well, something came before it. I need to make sure I understand the context so I don't just make it say what I want it to say. Because you're going to bring your prejudice, your bias to the text. So what has happened so far? Well, first off, we know this book was written by James. And he's writing to an audience that are Christian, that are spread out. That James is the half-brother of Jesus. That James is exhorting believers to practice spiritual maturity and wholeness. Because he believes, and we should believe, that your belief impacts your behavior. Your beliefs should impact your behavior. So if you remember, he starts off, he talks about trials. And that trials are going to come, and you're going to be tempted to sin. Maybe you're going to be tempted to not believe God is good. But what he says is you need to ask God for wisdom. How do I navigate life correctly in accordance with godly biblical knowledge and truth? But when you ask God, you need to ask understanding the character of God, that he's good and he gives good gifts and he doesn't want you to sin, but actually that he loves you. You need to believe that God can do what he said he will do and he's powerful. And then he goes into this section where he talks about how your obedience is actually a mark of spiritual wholeness, that you need to obey. And in obedience, that actually is, is helping show that you are spiritually mature and whole. And if you remember at the very end, the immediate context before we get to the passages today, which is very important to understand this text, is that what he just said is all of us need to be doers of the perfect law, showing compassion to the helpless. Again, you need to be doers of the perfect law by showing compassion to the helpless, the, the orphans, the widows, the voiceless, the marginalized, the ones who seemingly can't give back to you. And when you do that, you are practicing what he calls pure and undefiled religion. And in today's section, he immediately, after talking about the helpless and the marginalized, the voiceless, the people that can't seemingly help you, he's going to jump into a section talking about how you shouldn't show partiality or favoritism. So, chapter 2, verse 1 says this. My brothers, again, believers, my brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So those of you who are followers of Jesus should not show favoritism. See, the, the word favoritism, it, it literally has, uh, it's two words combined in the Greek, and it means receiving the face 
which is a weird way to say it, but they made it up in the New Testament. And so it just means who is receiving your face? Who is receiving your attention? Who are you focusing on? And, and actually the word is plural. Favoritisms, which highlight there's a multitude of applications here. That in this text, yes, it's going to go into poor versus rich. But actually, as I've said, you can have favoritism. You can have prejudices. You can have discrimination by so many different factors. This point is clear that the followers of Jesus should not show favoritism. And what he even says, if you look at that verse, he, he gives this adjective to describe uh, Jesus. He says he is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is the supreme example of impartiality. That Jesus himself, his ministry cast an incredibly wide net. Covering all ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, the rich and the poor, race, all people. And if you didn't notice, Jesus also himself is not rich. He's poor. He's born in a stable. And yet he was known for showing frequent special attention actually to the poor and the overlooked. And if we are to be Christians or little Christ, we're called to imitate our glorious Lord Jesus Christ by embodying impartiality, not practicing favoritism. So I've actually asked one of my good friends, James, he's going to come on up. He's going to bring two chairs up for us. Y'all can give a hand to James, college student. He's, he's great. He's just going to bring up these two chairs because James is about to do something very specific. So follow with me in verse 2. And verse 3, it says this. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, you, my friend... You get to sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you can sit here. Or you can sit down over there. What he says in this moment is, is that people come in and, and you judge them quickly. You give attention to a certain individual and you give them the place of honor. You give them focus. You let them sit in the nice, plush, comfortable chair and yet the person that maybe seems poor or doesn't have anything to offer you, you can just sit over in the corner. Sit down over there. And what he says is when you do something like this, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or motives? When you look at people and you assign them the place of honor, but other people, you, you put them out of sight, out of mind. You don't care for them as much as you care for someone else, especially for someone else that seemingly can, can give you what you want or what you need. Then he says that you're actually practicing evil. You're practicing evil. And, and again, let's just paint the cultural picture for a moment. This church that spread out at the time, this church was largely made up of poor people. Lots of poor people are coming to church, but only a few rich people are coming. So if a rich person comes in wearing their gold ring and their fine clothing, what starts to fill the, the leadership's mind? Oh, wait a second. 
this person might have a bigger house that we can have our, our meeting in. Maybe this person has more money to contribute to our cause. Or, or maybe they can help us uh, connect with government officials because they're well-connected in the city. Or maybe they can help us poor people acquire more land. And the, the idea, again, is what can you do for me? And therefore, I will give that person special treatment, the good seat, while you offer the poor person the, the bad seat. And all of this forces us to ask. We should be asking this question. Uh, who do I put in that seat? In my life. People like me. People that can offer me what I want or need or can provide comforts or give me control or allow me to be elevated on, the, uh, on some status. They go here. And, and who do you potentially, I just don't want to think about them. I don't want to look at them. I will avert my gaze. I will tell them to go somewhere else. But when you do that, what God says is you're practicing evil. You become an evil judge. And this is what James is warning us of. The entire passage really stems from that first command. That you're supposed to flee from favoritism. You're supposed to avoid it at all costs. Do not practice partiality. Why? Why is it so bad? Well, the rest of the verses... 5 through 13 is just going to over and over hammer this point. That favoritism is evil. And you need to flee from favoritism. And instead replace favoritism with love. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at why is favoritism bad. Why is it wrong? Why is it evil? And it's going to say first why you shouldn't practice favoritism is because it's inconsistent. Favoritism is inconsistent. Verse 5 through the first half of verse 6 says this. Listen, my beloved brothers. Again, believers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. See, favoritism is inconsistent with how God judges. Favoritism is inconsistent with who our God is. Favoritism is inconsistent with how God treats us and how God views us. And we're supposed to treat God the way he treats his people. So therefore, favoritism is inconsistent. And we know that God is not impartial, or that God is impartial from a couple pas passages. Look at Romans chapter 2, 9 through 11 and Colossians 3, 23 through 25. We're going to notice that both times it's saying God doesn't judge people based on favoritism. He doesn't select people because he likes them more or not likes them. That he gives all equally. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Stated clearly, God does not favor us differently. Favoritism is inconsistent with who God is. But also, if you look in, cha in Mark chapter 10, it's going to describe Jesus' entire mission on earth. Summarily, it says this. 
Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So favoritism is inconsistent with who God is, and favoritism is inconsistent with the lifestyle of our king. Treating the poor or the rich with favoritism is inconsistent with God. But it's also illogical. Favoritism is not just inconsistent, it's also illogical. He's going to go on. Second half of verse 6 and verse 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The second reason James gives why we shouldn't practice favoritism is the rich don't deserve your honor. It's illogical to treat the rich so well when actually they're treating you so poor. Again, remember the cultural context. In this moment, it's a small group of wealthy landowners and merchants, and they're getting more and more land and wealth. And in fact, if you were poor, you couldn't even levy a charge against the rich in the court of law. But the rich could, could charge the poor, and they would drag them to court. And then the rich could also provide the best lawyers and, and the people that could really win every case. And, and what James is saying is, why would you treat the rich with so much honor when this is how they treat you? And this really happens in lots of movies too. Because it's illogical and yet we're all prone to do it. To give the, the person the seat of honor that can maybe give us something that we want. I just want you to think about the movie Mean Girls. Okay? And again, this is, this is one of my least favorite movies, but lots of people love it. So that's great. Whatever. But if you notice the main character in Mean Girls, she wants to get on the good side of Regina George, who's like the worst person in history. She's trying to suck up to Regina George, and Regina George's never going to give her honor or respect. In A Christmas Story, this is one you, a lot of you might connect more with, right? If you remember the bully, his name is Scott Farkas, and his little sidekick henchman, you don't know his name, but actually it's Grover Dill, Okay? Grover Dill is trying to be tough and earn the respect of Scut, and he's never going to earn his respect, no matter how many kids he beats up for Scut. It's the office, where Dwight Schrute is constantly kissing up to Michael, and Michael's like too dumb to even know slash respect Dwight Schrute. Or maybe I'll make it a little more personal. Maybe it's you trying to win favor with your immoral boss your manipulative boss, that you are trying to win favor over and over and do everything they want, sacrificing maybe things that you shouldn't sacrifice in accordance with your priorities in life simply because you want them to like you, to care about you. You try and curry their favor. It's, it's illogical. And yet many of us have done it. I have done it. And I look back, I'm like, why was I trying so hard to win the favor of a human being? It's illogical. And so too with favoritism. So often the people who we are treating poorly or maybe elevating over others in reality are no way better than the people that we're kicking to the curb. It's inconsistent, it's illogical, and favoritism is also immoral. It's immoral. Look at verse 8 and 9. If, however, you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, favoritism is immoral because it violates the law. What law? The royal law. The perfect law in chapter 1. The New Testament teaches us about the kingdom of God, in which in many ways is already existent here on earth, but in many other ways we are still waiting for it to be fulfilled completely. So we participate in this kingdom of God now, which is countercultural to our culture, and we anticipate the day that one day our king comes back and he rules this kingdom. So we live in the already but not yet. And when King Jesus in his first advent is on the scene, someone comes up to him and says, Jesus, what is the most important rule of life? What is the most important command? How might I live according to the righteousness of God, according to the kingdom of God? And this was Jesus' response. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. I sum it all up. That's the kingdom of God. The most important moral command I can give you as the king of this land is to love God, love your neighbor. And yet favoritism is juxtaposed to this royal law. And therefore it's immoral. It is committing directly against the most important command. It's immoral to, to defy the king's law. And he knows that we're prone to maybe make this sin not as important as other sins. Like I might show some favoritism to some people because they can kind of get me what I want and I'm trying to curry their favor, but that's not like a big deal. I'm not like murdering people or like committing adultery, which is exactly what James knows you're gonna think and probably go this route. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all of the law. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What is James saying? That you're guilty if you commit favoritism. Period. End of discussion. It's not a comparison of other sins. If you sin in even one point of this law, and this, by the way, is the most important law, love God and love your neighbor, that if you practice favoritism, you don't. Favoritism is inconsistent. It's illogical. It's immoral. And lastly, the last two verses, it's inconsiderate. To practice favoritism is inconsiderate. Read verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are about to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What he says is favoritism is inconsiderate of the coming judgment of God. Favoritism is inconsiderate of the coming judgment that we will all face. Now you might say, as I've heard many times, Benjamin, I thought Christians escaped God's judgment. I hear that all the time. I'm a Christian now, so there's no judgment. That's actually incorrect. Over and over in Scripture, it shows that believers and non-believers alike are judged based on their works. What? Christians and non-Christians alike 
are judged based on their works. But there's two judgments coming. And which judgment you stand in based on your works, which judgment that you stand in is based on your faith. Let me explain. If you have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you escape a specific judgment. And that judgment is called the great white throne judgment. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. And that's the, that's the judgment where they open up the book of life. And if your name is not in the book of life, then there's another book that's opened up and you're judged based on your works. Your name's not in the book of life because you never believed in Jesus. So therefore, you are judged based on your works. And what are your works? Well, did you live perfectly in accordance with God's standard? Did you love God and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly? And you never once stepped out of that perfect, righteous standard? The answer is no. None of us do that. So if your name is not in the book of life, you are condemned. But there's another judgment that believers do stand at. We do stand at a judgment that's based on your works. But this judgment is not going to be based on if you go to heaven or hell. This is a judgment that's determining based on honor and rewards. So there's another judgment, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And all believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or whether bad. This is not talking if you get heaven or hell. You get heaven. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are forgiven and saved and have a relationship with God as your father. But you are going to be judged based on your works. Did you love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? It's still based on your works. Did you treat the rich with partiality or favoritism? Did you slight the poor? Did you treat all people as dignified image bearers of God or only as some worthy of your time? Did you look people in the eye or did you try and just pretend they didn't exist? So the passage shows that we're going to be judged based on how we love one another. And when you show favoritism, that is the opposite of loving. That is practicing evil as an evil judge. And I couldn't help but bring this illustration because it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I recognize that. So good football teams, really great football teams, like the Kansas City Chiefs or the Philadelphia Eagles playing today, uh, they're always playing in light of the clock. right? If you notice, if you're watching the game today, and let's say the, uh, the Chiefs are down two scores with the last two minutes on the clock, you can believe, which they never do anyway, run as much as they let Patrick Mahomes throw it, but you can believe that they're not going to run the ball up the middle with two minutes left down two scores. They're going to chunk the ball. They're going to chunk the ball over and over as far as they can. They're going to try and score, and they're going to try and score again, and they're going to try and score again as fast as possible without eating up much clock. On the flip side, if a team is up two scores with two minutes left on the clock, they are going to run the ball. Because they want to waste clock. They want the time to run out because they are winning. You see, the time on the clock affects how you play the game. The time on the clock affects how you play the game. And when we as believers in Christ know that a judgment is coming and we don't know when Jesus is returning, 
When we don't know that, we should always be living in light of our future reality. That Jesus could come back at any moment, and I will be judged based on my works. See, it's, it's inconsiderate for you to live in a way that is practicing favoritism. Because favoritism is, is bad. It's ultimately inconsistent, it's illogical, it's immoral, and it's inconsiderate. So that's the whole passage. It really just like dogs on being uh, practicing favoritism. Like, don't do it. But the question then is, is, is what do we do? Like, don't practice it. Well, typically when you just tell people, hey, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and here's all the reasons why, you probably don't naturally just be like, okay, I just now don't do any of those things ever. It's really hard for us to be motivated by the negative. So what are you asking me to do, James and ultimately Jesus, his half-brother, who he quotes all the time? Is this. Show love, not favoritism. Simple. Show love, not favoritism. Why should I show love and not favoritism? Well, one, it's consistent. Love, unlike favoritism, is entirely consistent with who God is and the lifestyle of our king. God shows no partiality towards us, and therefore we shouldn't practice favoritism with anyone else. Two, love is completely logical. If we are God's children made in his image, just as I think about my kids, and and if I think about how I want other people to treat my kids, I should also treat other people's kids the exact same way I would want them to treat my kids. That makes logical sense. The way of Jesus says all people, of all races and socioeconomic backgrounds, they're all image bearers. They're all worthy of dignity and respect. And therefore, it's logical to act impartial with everybody. Third, love is exceedingly moral. I mean, it's the most important command. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. If we are to be salt and light, a city upon a hill that shines in the darkness, in a culture that is hurting and broken and divisive, naturally, the most, the most moral thing we can do to reflect kingdom values and to obey God's royal and perfect law is, is to love God and, and love our neighbors as ourselves. We, we must not practice favoritism. And fourth, love is considerate. It's highly considerate because you are living in light of the future reality that you will be judged based on your works and your works are defined by Jesus as loving God and loving neighbors as yourself. So show love, not favoritism. How? Okay, because that's pretty broad. If I just said, go in peace, show love, you'd be like, cool, I don't know what that means. Show love, not favoritism. How do we do it? Couple suggestions. One, evaluation. Evaluation. If you actually looked at verse 3, I kind of italicized it earlier, but it said, if you pay special attention, because your, uh, your attention marks what you are ultimately honoring. Evaluation of your motives is super important. Evaluate your motives, pay close attention to your attentions. In other words, if the infamous ice cube, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Like you think about what are my my motives? Have I acted in such a way as an evil-minded judge? Have I harbored unchecked favoritism or prejudice in my own heart? 
Have I felt that some people are simply less worthy of my time, my attention, my efforts, my love? What captures your heart? Maybe that's something you stew on today. What is really keeping my attention, specifically when I look at people around me? Maybe think of it this way. What person do I want to sit in the nice chair? And what person would I rather just never have to deal with? Push them away. And at that moment, you get to evaluate why. Why, why do I put some people in that chair and some people I put in this chair? Why do I do that? The second thing that I would encourage you to do is reflection. Not just evaluate your heart and your motives, the attention that you're giving to other people, why you give them that attention, but ultimately it's going to come down to an identity check. A reflection on the gospel. A reflection on the gospel. See, God is impartial. He doesn't show favorites, and it's a really, really good thing. Because if you read through the scriptures, you're going to see how the Bible describes us apart from God. Without Jesus, this is how the scriptures describe us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. That's the first half of Isaiah 53, 6. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned. That means missing the mark. For all have sinned, and not just missed the mark, but all have also fallen short of the glory of God, that none of us hit the righteous and perfect standard. And therefore, Romans 6, 23, the penalty or the wage of your sin, that you don't love God and love people perfectly at all times, is death. That all of us in this room have gone astray and all of us have sinned and fallen short and shown partiality. And sin does not show partiality and neither does God. That all of us sin, all of us are sinners and all of us deserve death. That, that's just, that's the truth. That's what the scriptures say. All of us deserve a separation from a holy, righteous, and perfect God because we ourselves are not perfect and righteous and holy in and of ourself. But praise be to God that there's more to these verses. Romans 6, 23, the second half says this. The free gift, the gracious gift, the gift that you could never earn, you couldn't do enough to receive, this free gift, it is eternal life found only in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. That all of us were like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us had gone his own way, the second half of Isaiah 53. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of all of us. That Jesus received the penalty for our sin. He received death. He died in the grave. He was in there for three days because of our sin. He didn't deserve it because he never sinned. And when we think about him rising from the dead and offering us righteousness and offering us eternal life, it is the good news. It is the gospel. We were the poor man, the helpless widow. We were the orphans neglected, wanting adoption. We were the wayward son, the rebellious people, the wicked, the cosmic, treasonous, treasonous people who were completely against God. And yet in that moment, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus' character and ministry and mission was to save broken, poor people. And therefore, we must reflect on our identity. We have to reflect on the reality that we were the poor people. We were the people that were outcasted. We, because of our own works, we were separated from a holy, perfect, and righteous God. And yet, God offered us a gracious gift, something we could never earn, we would never deserve in and of ourselves. Whenever you think about the reality that you have received grace, it's much easier to also extend it. Grace received is grace extended. When you reflect on the reality that we are the recipients of grace, you also offer grace to others. So oftentimes, truly, why scriptures keep saying, it's not just what saves you, but it's what makes you grow in completion and maturity is the gospel. When you reflect on the gospel as your identity, you will treat people differently. There will be no favoritism because you recognize God did not show me favoritism. If so, I always get the chair. But instead, I get to offer every person that I come into contact with love because that's exactly what God did for me. Which leads to our last application point. Action. James is a book of action. He wants you not just to learn more things. He wants you to do something with your beliefs. He wants your beliefs to impact your behavior. With Jesus, there's no favoritism. He's marked by deep levels of concern for the poor and the outcast. And he over and over instructs his disciples to care for the poor. You're to prioritize the outcast and the marginalized, the voiceless, the ones that seemingly can't help you. Those are the ones that when you love and serve and give of your life to, that's you practicing pure and undefiled religion. And this is James's point. Imitate the attitude of Jesus. What neighbor do you need to love as yourself? What opportunity to serve the poor do you need to jump into? Who do you need to be more willing to engage with? If you were to go to Grace's website, grace-bible.org, and you click the tab that says local outreach, it has a long list of community partnerships. We partner with people here in town who are maybe poor or vulnerable or marginalized. And this includes Aggieland Pregnancy Outreach, BCS Together, The Bee Community, Brazos Church Pantry, Habitat for Humanity, Hope Pregnancy Center, Save Our Streets, and much, much more. Maybe today is just a day you think about how do I leverage my time to, to care for those around me and in the city and in Bryan. I know many of the people that serve in those different organizations and ministries, and they would love for you to jump in and serve. How is Christ inviting each one of us to obey the royal law today? To not practice favoritism, but instead to show love. Because we're called to love God and love our neighbors. So again, to show love, not favoritism, we first need to evaluate our own hearts, our motives. We need to reflect on our identities in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we need to move into action by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Well, Father, I just, I do, I pray that 
that we would first and foremost get to see that we were the people that that were poor. We were the broken. We were the sheep that had gone astray. Each one of us had sinned and fall short of, of your glory, of your perfect righteous standard that none of us in this room perfectly obey the royal law of King Jesus. And I am so grateful, God, that one, you provided a way for us to have life with you in your name, Jesus, because of your righteousness that you imputed to us, that you lived perfectly the life that we don't and can't. And then therefore we receive the life that only you, King Jesus, deserved. I pray that that would then impact every aspect of our life, that we would grow in spiritual maturity and wholeness, that we would look at people differently, that we would be a people that don't show favoritism or partiality or discrimination. God, that we would engage with our neighbors around us, even if sometimes it's really, really hard, which it is. And yet, God, we get to see Jesus constantly doing it over and over again. God, I pray that each one of us, even today and the rest of this week, we'd have an opportunity to evaluate our own heart and motives for how we treat people. And then I do pray that you would move us into action. Let us be a people that are marked by serving those around us, loving our neighbor as ourselves. that people would come to know you, King Jesus, simply because we love people well through your spirit. Help us, God, we need help in that. And we pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit.